life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brutal. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. Dr. Muhammad Kamal, welcome to the Biohacking Secret Show. Anthony, thank you so much for having me on your show. You, you and I were talking right before we hit record, and you said you grew up in Egypt. Uh, yeah. So I've been to Egypt twice. My brother, uh, he, he taught at university there and, uh, and lived there for a, a decade. And he actually, yeah, he, he actually even, he had a, a woman that he was, you know, dating pretty seriously. And her parents only wanted her to date someone of uh, Muslim faith. So my brother actually converted yeah. and became Muslim and started practicing. And then her dad was like, why'd you do that? He was like, there's no winning. There's no winning. <laughs> they didn't end up staying together. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? He was totally expecting a different response. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, but he, he spe- my brother speaks pretty, pretty legit Arabic. And um, so we have that in common. And I think we'll, we'll get to talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in Egypt and how that impacted yeah. you and some of the, the, the things that you learned from your mother. But for our audience who might not be, familiar with your work. Can you give us your origin story? Sure. Uh, so I, I was born in Washington, D.C. to uh, Egyptian parents. Um, and then they both moved back to Egypt when I was two years old. So I have no childhood memory of being in America. Uh, but then I, uh, so I grew up in Egypt and other countries. And then I um, went to med school in Cairo University, graduated, and immediately came back to the United States to pursue my medical career. And uh, as I, you know, moved in here, I was, um, I became interested in pathology and uh, pathologists are physicians that they are, uh, after finishing medical school, they do their training in the field of laboratory medicine. And that's what I did. And after I finished my residency at Harbor UCLA, I uh, subspecialized in gastrointestinal pathology at UCLA. I did a fellowship there and then I finished and I started my lab in 2009. So pathology, a lot of people, how would you define pathology? So uh, pathology is the, uh, the the translation of the word is the study of disease. Um, the, uh, the pathologist is somebody who makes a diagnosis of diseases, and this diagnosis could be based on analysis of body fluids, like blood and urine samples and things like they do go through the lab that's called clinical pathology. And then uh, the anatomic or histopathology is the tissue diagnosis. So that's what I do, where you get samples from biopsies. Uh, In the case of gastrointestinal pathology, people who are going upper endoscopy, doing under upper endoscopy or undergoing colonoscopies, uh, they remove polyps, they remove tumors, and uh, they come to the laboratory, it gets processed in the lab and placed on a, a glass slide that I examine microscopically under the microscope. And I, I render the diagnosis from there. And based on that diagnosis, the treatment plan is designed. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Have you, have, have you guys analyzed the contents of tumors? And if yes, what, what have you found? So, uh, well, so this is um, that's a, 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 an interesting question. So, of course, when you think about um, the, the microscopic analysis uh, is what we call morphology. The shape of the cells mm-hmm. determines whether this is benign or malignant because benign cells are identified. They have certain features that are recognizable. And then as a switch is turned on, where the neoplastic process starts, that neoplastic process could be benign or malignant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, the benign tumors have their own features and then malignant ones have their own features. And then you start to see a little bit of a out of control uh, behavior for the malignant uh, tumors where they would invade and they would look, uh, they would not look alike and each cell takes its own shape and size and they become, they grow out of control. So traditionally pathology was looking at the microscopic evaluation and we say this is benign or malignant. Then more advanced science 
was introduced, and now you could actually identify the cells based on some antigen-antibody reactions, a cell that you don't know what it belongs to, and you run a series of something we call immunohistochemistry stains, you can identify that. Now, we have the genetic testing that you could take the tumor and you do even further examination so you can identify, oh, this patient has this uh, tumor, but that tumor um, has these genetic features, hence it will respond to that treatment. And another person with the same type of tumor but doesn't have the genetic features because the genetic testing didn't show it, would not respond to that tumor. So we are going into levels and levels of identification on this one uh, you know, tumor cell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so has it gotten, I mean, are there people looking at things? There, there are a number of toxins or chemicals, specifically pesticides, herbicides. You've got a lot of class action lawsuits with Paraquat and Roundup and and things like that. Um, ha, is there anyone looking to see if those are contents of cancer tumors? Is it is, Has it gotten that granular yet? Is anyone exploring at, at that level? Like here are things that have been implicated or where there's at least a correlation, not necessarily causation, Let's see if they're in higher levels in the blood, urine, or tumors of someone who has uh, a, a malignant growth, or even a benign growth, I suppose. To my knowledge, I don't know that there is a systemic investigation that happens every time somebody is diagnosed with with can with the, with the malignant tumor. Mm-hmm. However, I can tell you that I've always wondered. Uh, we have something called tumor registry in in America. Every time in my lab on the pathology, when we make a diagnosis, we have there is an, an actually an electronic link that would send that cancer diagnosis to the California Tumor Registry. So there is a tumor registry for all cancer mm. cases. Once the diagnosis is like something required, I've always wondered because we're now doing what we call genetic profiling, as I described earlier. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering. If we if we invest as a nation, we have we, we invest billions of dollars in in testing and in in medical science and medical advancement. I wonder if if somebody have ever thought of doing what I describe as environmental profiling. Mm. Right, a patient gets diagnosed with cancer. You go to that patient's environment. Right, yeah. you 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 find out where they grew up, what cities they lived in. Uh, what kind of exposure to power lines? Yeah. Uh, what what they have for what kind of cereal they eat every morning? Mm-hmm. All of these things you list this and you create this amazing database that now even with AI and mm-hmm. the the analytic power that we have now, you could for sure identify some patterns where Absolutely. we say people who lived in these communities from this year to that year we're seeing that they are more likely to develop this type of cancer. Mm-hmm. I actually think that this would be an amazing project to invest in. And I, so I, and I, I don't know that it happens. Right. It doesn't. Right. I, I, I don't either, but I mean, you've got my wheels spinning a little bit here because, and you take all of the things that, that have been correlated at least with cancer and we see which ones have the strongest causation effect. Right, which ones are showing up the most? Oh, it's these people that you know they're they're in um, they're in an area that's saturated with PFOS, forever chemicals, you know. Or these people, uh, these these kids got thirty immunizations before the age of three, and these kids got ten. There's a connection there, or there's a correlation there. You know, I'd be I'd be fascinated by that. It would be a great, it doesn't sound um, like a, a like a sexy project, but I think it would be extremely useful to have that information. Right. I mean, I think it would be sexy for like the data, the data types. There's some people that right. would totally jones out on that and, and just love <laughs> digging into like yeah. millions and millions of data points and, and implementing. Right. It drive me insane. I'd go I'd go nuts trying to do that in front of that spreadsheet. Right. <laughs> but but there's a geek out there who can really enlighten us. Yes, calling, <laughs> calling all geeks listening to this who uh, want to do some good for humanity. This is right. this is a project. Yeah. And I mean, now even what you, when you talk about environmental profiling, I've spoken to a great deal, uh, uh, spoken a great deal about 
screen time and how much we're around wireless electricity, that that extra radiation, you know how it is. Like we're we're fighting cancer from the moment we're born, right? But at a certain point, we can reach this tipping point where too many metals, too many toxins, too much radiation, too much screen time, not enough sleep. And, you know, as Dr. Stephen Cabral calls the rain barrel effect, then the body can't keep up. Too many double-stranded DNA breaks from being on your phone for 10 hours and sitting with a Wi-Fi router between your legs, you know? And uh, so what we're trying to do in part of this conversation today is how do we how do we live a uh, a lifestyle that minimizes the probability that we're affected by uh, RECNAC, which for our listeners is cancer spelled backwards. So if uh, Dr. Muhammad and I say RECNAC, you know what we're talking about, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and more specifically HPV. So can you tell us a little bit, how did you decide to focus in on HPV? What is it for our listeners who aren't familiar? So um, HPV is uh, short for human papillomavirus. It is the most common sexu sexually transmitted disease in, um, in the United States. And I actually believe in the, in the developed countries. Um, and it is linked, of course, everybody knows, uh, to cancer of the cervical canal, cervix. So when women go for pap smears, the, the pap smear sample is tested for HPV because it, um, cervical cancer is HPV-related cancer. And we actually started um, doing this um, testing when we started testing and offering services to GYN physicians and we were getting pap smears and running the molecular PCR test for HPV. And then we started to hear questions uh, from our clients telling us, well, um, do you have anything for oral HPV? And, 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 and as we started looking into it, we found out, and I was shocked, that throat cancer is an HPV-related, initially, like 40 years ago, most cases of throat cancers were caused by smoking. Mm -hmm. But there has been a gradual rise in HPV-related throat cancer. And uh, as I did more and more research, I found that the, we don't have any screening for this cancer. Now, they're both uh, same type of cancer in the cervix and the throat. They're both what they call squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell meaning the cells that line the the, the cervical canal. Same thing as the cells that line the throat. Mm. Um, and they're both HPV related. But today in America, you have more men with HPV related throat cancer than women with cervical cancer. And and the answer is very simple. The explanation is very simple. Is because there has been an established guideline for screening for cervical cancer. Every woman goes for periodical, periodical uh, pap smear testing and they do this screening. And that screening allowed us to see a decline in cervical cancer. None of that is happening in throat cancer. With, with men. So I, so I said, okay, well, I mean, how is it that there is no, uh, no otopharyngeal or throat swab for HPV? There wasn't. So I said, okay, this is our job. We need to develop that test. So we took the FDA-approved uh, cervical HPV test mm -hmm. and we validated in our lab as a lab developed test. So our lab is basically, um, it's called high-complexity laboratory. High-complexity laboratories are allowed to develop their own tests. So at Omnipathology, we said, okay, we can do this. We took the FDA-approved cervical HPV test and we validated it on oropharyngeal samples. And we ended up with a, a wonderful assay. It's extremely accurate and robust. Um, we have a sensitivity of 95.2% and specificity of 100%. And we started offering that test. And of can course- you, Can you explain what those statistics mean to sure. our so, listeners? So, so every test, uh, you want to um, make sure a screening test is supposed to be a test uh, that is sensitive, meaning that it would have the smallest amount of false negative patients, meaning that somebody has the disease, but when you test, they're negative, right? Mm -hmm. So a 95.2%, meaning that if you have 100 people being tested for that, mm -hmm. and those 100 people do have HPV, it will catch it in 95, 
and it will miss it in four, in four or four point eight or in five of them. Okay. Right? So that's that's the sensitivity. Sensitivity okay. is the ability of the test to um, identify people with disease as positive. And is there a minimum threshold for that? Like, what if something is is fifty two percent sensitive? <laughs> you know, the, the lower the sensitivity, the less uh, the less attractive the test is going right. to be, and the less effective it will be, and it will less able to detect the disease in the community. Okay, all right, that makes sense. And then, and then the specificity is the ability of the test to identify the people that don't have the disease. Uh, as as negative. So if somebody doesn't have the disease, then they will be negative. Okay. So it has very it has low false positive. Okay, that makes sense. So your numbers were were what for sensitivity and specificity? Ninety five point two for sensitivity and one hundred percent for specificity. Okay, and that do you, what what sample size was used to determine that? So we, we we have a protocol. Of course, it's not it's not it wouldn't be like thousands of samples like what you see in in published studies because the level for the standard for validation you pretty much would need to have if you if you do a validation like I give you an example COVID uh, validation when we did our COVID test the validation had a sample of thirty and thirty thirty positive and thirty negative. Okay. This one we actually have um, higher numbers because we validated it using three different media. So the swab, like if you recall from COVID, you swab and then you put it in a, in a media, mm-hmm. in a tube. So we have three different tubes that we, uh, three different types of media that we use for that. Mm-hmm. So our sample probably goes to around maybe uh, 90 positive and 90 negatives. And, um, and our numbers have been consistently uh, coming at this level. Um, and and we're, we're, we're very happy with it. So how many and people have you tested to determine that? So, uh, so we have tested so far over two hundred people. Okay, that's pretty. That's 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 legit. It's not like it's not like nine. <laughs> no, 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 no. We have we've tested we've tested a lot, and actually we have detected a lot of positives, which is quite um, really interesting because these are people that uh, never thought about um, oropharyngeal or throat HPV until we started promoting the test. Right. Yeah. So, so here's the here's the here's the logic, and here is a, here's a, a barrier to to testing that we're facing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, as we started talking about oropharyngeal HPV or throat HPV, we have people telling us, "Well, but HPV resolves on its own. Why why do I need to test for it?" So my answer was number one, it's exactly the same case in cervical. Uh, HPV. Nobody is making any argument that cervical HPV results on its own and we don't need to test. Everybody is testing for cervical HPV. Um, You test because even though it resolves on its own, persistent HPV infection is linked to cancer development. So how are you going to identify patients with persistent HPV infection if you're not going to test for it? That's what happens in the cervical canal, and then we need to so do that. You're saying the- it's not an HPV issue; it's a cancer issue, and you can test. You can use HPV as a corollary for predicting cancer risk. Exactly, and and that's the same logic that we that is applied in the cervical canal. So we're not reinventing the wheel. But then, what do you do besides scare somebody? Right, because you're like, oh yes, you're, you have a higher risk of cancer. And they're like, what do I do? You know, and you know they're not going to change that much. <laughs> you're Wonderful. Like, <laughs> this, this is the second. This was the second barrier that I was going to talk to you about. Okay. So sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Someone of you. once told me somebody. Yeah, somebody once told me, but I'm going to scare people. I'm going to scare people yeah. when they when I tell them that you have throat HPV and it may resolve on its own. So I, my answer is number one: we're doing this to every woman all the time. Women are getting HPV results all the time. Nobody's thinking we're going to scare these women. The idea is when somebody tests positive, we tell them that doesn't mean you have cancer, but it means that you need to be followed up. And if you are shown to have persistent HPV infection, then we are going to refer you to an ENT doctor. The ENT doctor can do a scope, can look, and the idea is to find early lesion, to do early detection. Because this cancer, the first presentation today for oropharyngeal cancer or throat cancer is a metastatic lymph node in the neck. This is why when you go to the doctor and they, and they do the, um, the, the dental hygienist 
uh, they do this palpation of the neck. They're mm-hmm. trying to find if there's any prominent lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. And you, I see you started to. <laughs> yeah, I'm just making sure I'm HPV free over here. You know? Yeah, but 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 this is the whole idea: is that now we want to detect that that can that RECNAC before it metastasizes to a lymph node. We want to get an early detection, mm-hmm. and 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 that was really linked to what I have always been saying. When I think of myself as a pathologist, I don't really think of myself as in the business of cancer diagnosis. I'm in the business of cancer pre- prevention because mm-hmm. most of the work that I do is from screening for colon cancer, screening for gastric cancer, esophageal cancer. We, this mm-hmm. is the business is cancer prevention and early detection is as important as treatment. What's up guys, Anthony here. And I have a biohack that I think you'll find interesting. So some things that are important to me are structuring my water revitalizing it, making sure it's, of course, clean. You know, you can't have fluoride or chlorine or anything in there that's going to cause oxidative stress or destroy your gut microbiome. But once you have clean water, we need to energize it or structure it. And the way that I do this is a device called the Soma Vedic. Now, the research that's been done on these devices is really exciting. So you guys have probably seen those videos uh, back in the day about the effect of different energies and words on water, where if you spoke to water using words like love and gratitude and peace and compassion, the water, when frozen and looked at under uh, various types of microscopes, took on a crystalline, almost snowflake-like structure. They partnered with the Masaromoto Institute and found that the Soma Vedic has the same effect. But it goes a lot further. They've also found that when we are exposed to wireless electricity, our blood starts to, it hypercoagulates, it becomes thicker. The electrons around red blood cells that keep our blood flowing freely, we start to lose them. And the red blood cells stick together and that's where you can experience brain fog, fatigue, cardiovascular issues. It can increase your risk of all chronic and degenerative diseases. And the Soma Vedic also has been shown to restore healthy blood flow and actually put some of these electrons back into your body so that your red blood cells flow more easily and effortlessly throughout your circulatory system. If you guys are interested in checking out the Soma Vedic, you can go to somavedic.com. We have a biohacks discount code set up for you and I think you'll love it. Are you familiar with the the process that's been happening where a number of countries in the European Union, European Union have stopped using mammograms? Um, uh, no, but I've, 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 I'm not familiar that it's actually happening, but I've heard arguments about that. Yeah. So a number of, of countries have stopped using mammograms because of uh, there's a number of there's a growing body of evidence that they can actually increase and possibly even cause cancer. Because of the radiation exposure? Yeah, and, and, and you're damaging the, the tissue in some cases um, as well. And and so I think, and th- I mean, there's so many women that, that did mammograms because that's what their doctors were told and that's, you know, what, what they were told. So they did it and they wanted to prevent cancer. And then you find out that might actually be increasing their risk. How, how can someone have confidence that we're, they're not walking into the same situation with an HPV test? Okay, so um, first let's talk but, about but, but more like you know they'll find out in twenty yeah, yeah. years or something. Well, that's that's a that's a reasonable question. So, if you think about mammogram, um, as 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 you know, without without questioning any data that says that you know exposure to radiation through mammogram can cause cancer, I'm not going to argue with that. I can give you a, there would be hundreds of examples of women that through mammogram detected early breast cancer, okay? So it's it's going to be very hard to, to, to say that to somebody who had a mammogram at age 40, found a small lesion, removed it, and didn't have, you know, stage four cancer, right? So that that is my point on the mammogram, but I'm not questioning that it is possible that this right. could have, could lead to that. The, our HPV test um, doesn't have any exposure to anything. It's a swab. Um, and that swab uh, is is rolled in the back of the mouth for about 
15, 10, 15 seconds, and that's mm -hmm. it. So now, the tr this uh, compare this, if it leads to early detection or it identifies the patients that need to be followed up so that we can protect them from developing throat cancer. You look at the, the treatment, the financial burden um, on the health system and the lost wages and all of that, this is, you know, it's almost a no-brainer. But there is no radiation exposure. I would say it's a no-brainer if mm. there weren't other less invasive modalities for screening that had a comparable efficacy. You know, so that's the question. Like with with mammograms, they can use thermography and see that there's an increased temperature in an, in an infected breast, right? So they, they don't need to use any of the radiation. I'm curious, like, have you looked and seen, do people that have HPV or an infection and, and they're developing, let's say these nodules, would, would their, would the temperature of their throat be elevated? Theoretically, I don't know if you know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm yeah, interested. No. Yeah, I know this is a good question, actually. I, I, I can tell you this. I don't know the answer to that question, but you have to also bear in mind, we don't have any data on people that have throat HPV because we just started testing. Mm -hmm. there, I'm, I'm not aware of any lab that offers oropharyngeal HPV testing. So we're coming in and we are actually having engaged in conversations with academic centers because we do want to have some research studies to look into those individuals that have throat HPV and be able to have a long-term study to follow up these patients to identify, for example, how um, who has persistent HPV infection, right? And what kind of patient gets persistent HPV infection and what are the risk factors that would lead to it. We don't have any of these data because we don't have data on individuals with oropharyngeal HPV. Mm -hmm. Now, we have patients that come with cancer, and then when the cancer is removed, we test it and we find that it's HPV-related. So this is like this is a group of people that is really way after the fact, and we don't have data on people with throat HPV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to see some of the some of the conundrum. Yeah, no, we're early in the game, and then you would never um, maybe maybe also uh, people that have persistent HPV infection could be found to have some kind of genetic abnormality that is making them more susceptible for a development of of arachnic, right? Right. So you never. Right. We definitely, we definitely need some some data, and I feel like with this, especially some of that data might need to be intimate sexual history and frequency. <laughs> how many right. how many different partners do you have? Uh, how 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 loose are you in the sheets? <laughs> right. So so here's the thing that I did when I developed that test, and I said we need we're going to be th uh, swabbing throats. Um, I have never marketed any tests to dentists. We don't have any products for dentists. But when I thought about this and I said, well, dentists and dental hygienists have unparalleled access to patients' throats. If you wait until the patient sees an ENT, I mean, people live their entire life without seeing an ENT doctor once, right? So we started marketing the test to dentists. And the first thing that came to us was, we don't talk about sex in the dental practice. So my answer was this. Well, you're doing the neck palpation. You're going to educate your patients and you're going to tell them, we're doing this because we want to find if there's any mass. These masses can result from throat and oral neck. And with that, uh, one of them is an HPV-related cancer. That HPV-related disease would require us to ask you about you know, sexual history. And you're absolutely correct. It is HPV and persistent HPV are also linked to multiple sexual partners, multiple uh, uh, genital and oral sexual partners. So these, these questions should be asked. And this is the kind of, you know, uh, information you need to get in, in any healthcare encounter. Yeah. I would love to see, see you connect with uh, Ron Huntinghake from the Riordan clinic. Cause they, they've been using, infrared thermography as a diagnostic tool for cancer. And 
it would be interesting for you to ask them, you know, do, are, are, is the throat region uh, elevated in some individuals? And if it is, that would be a great study. Yeah. And then and you can they've got the machinery, you know what I mean? And you guys could just communicate. And now you've got a bigger a bigger data pool of of people. Um, so I wanted to ask, like with um, with the development of something like this, mm -hmm. the inactive ingredients or the adjuvants, do you have 100 percent control and say of what those are or in order for something to be FDA approved? Do they sit? Do they tell you, hey, you need to this swab needs to sit in a solution that includes whatever polysorbate 80 or something like that. Like how much, how much autonomy versus direction is, is there with the inactive ingredients or adjuvants in on your test? Yeah. So we, we don't manufacture our swabs or our preservative. Uh, we be the same company that makes the, uh, the instrument, which is a well-known company. Uh, also, from that same company, we buy the swabs and the and the tubes. They have their own pathway. I mean, this is a, a very well established company. And again, the good thing about this is that uh, what we use for the cervical, uh, what we we basically take in what has been through the FDA approval for the cervical, and use it exactly the same way with only changing the specimen source instead of doing the cervix we're getting it on the uh, oropharynx or the throat. So the, 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 I am sure that this has gone through an FDA process to get the cervical HPV approval, but I have no information uh, on the details of that process. Ah, okay. So there's, you're familiar with, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I guess, what are your thoughts on the, the, the Gardasil um, vaccine? And, 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 and what, you know, what have, what research have you done around that and as a preventative tool or something that potentially may carry risks? So, um, my thoughts on, on the vaccine, um, I think the vaccine's impact on oropharyngeal cancer are going to be, um, a, a prolonged process because this is what happens with, I'm going to talk about the vaccine, but I just want to t say something about the HPV infection. Mm -hmm. So the source of HPV infection is usually genital. So it arises in the genital tract. And what, what happens, the access to the throat happens through the oral sex, through oral sex, right? Um, today, when you look at the approval for the for the HPV vaccine, it's actually um, oropharyngeal cancer or throat cancer is not listed as uh, things that the vaccine prevents. Not because there is no belief in that; it's just because they have no data. They have no data on oropharyngeal HPV. So down the road, I think there will be plenty of data on that. Now the in general, of course, I'm not um, I'm not an immunologist, and I don't have a lot of knowledge on the vaccines. Mm -hmm. But um, but this is a vaccine that needs to be offered before the individual starts sexual practices, and and that is that is going to make a big difference if it, it happens early. Now that means we're talking about you know teenagers, and I know that there's a lot of emotions about vaccines for young patients and their impacts. I personally didn't do much research on that and I don't have much knowledge on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Do you, are you, are you familiar with, um, amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate or AAHS? No, no. It's, it's one of the ingredients listed by the CDC as an adjuvant or an inactive ingredient in the HPV vaccine. So on the on the CDC's website, the um, the first excipient or inactive ingredient is this amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate, um, and then you know fast forward. There's an article or a study rather that was published in in August of 2020 by the uh, British Medical Journal, and the title is uh, "Was Amorphous Aluminum." hydroxyphosphate sulfate adequately evaluated before authorization in Europe. 
because there's a, a growing concern that this this compound, which contains aluminum, an, a known neurotoxin, was rushed through the approval process, and now it's being put in people through the HPV vaccine. So they're they're being told that something that is designed to prevent RECNAC, um, and 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 they're actually injecting themselves with a with a possible carcinogen multiple possible car carcinogens because an emulsifier polysorbate 80 is also uh, an inactive ingredient listed by the CDC. Does that mm. concern you at all? Of course, of course, especially when we talk about children. I mean, this is being offered to, to young people. Actually, the decision to give the vaccine usually with HPV is, is, a, is a parent's decision. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're going, you're, of course, it's a risk and a decision made by a parent that may impact the child for a very long time. Yeah, of course, all of these things would be concerning. And I can tell you that, um, you know, so many drugs have been passed through the FDA, passed through extensive uh, clinical trials, and um, and then you find out that the drugs get uh, recalled. Yeah, I was I was put on Vioxx when I was a kid, the, the anti-inflammatory for knee pain. Oh, yeah. And that was a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're doing well now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but I'm still fine. Look at me now. Because <laughs> I'm over here tw yeah, twitching. You, I mean, <laughs> That's why I have a podcast. No one can see me twitching uncontrollably over here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that the, we, we, we trust the regulatory agencies to do their job. I don't, I don't. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean you may, are, I don't. I mean, <laughs> I'm messing around. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, if they don't, you know, who would do it, right? I mean, they are in charge that they are, they're, they're authorized to give the approvals. But yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. We're not, we're not living in a perfect world. And um, and I think that uh, that this is something that can be disturbing. And I, I, and thank you for educating me on that. I didn't know I didn't know that at all. And not, and not you know I'm saying it just as much for our, our listeners. And and um, and again, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that have done this research. It's not like it's not me, um, you know, that I've dug in, dug into it. It's all out there. But the the other question that I had, and and maybe you can poke a hole in my logic because um, you know. It's not always sound, so <laughs> please help me out. But so uh, I'm hearing that there's no data on the HPV vaccine for throat throat cancer, right? Or, or because we don't have that that data, right? Yeah, it's not okay. listed as diseases that are prevented by the vaccine. Okay, so so the Gardasil vaccine does not help. There's no data showing that it helps with with the throat component of this cancer because the data doesn't exist. Right. Boys right. don't have a cervix mm -hmm. and therefore wouldn't get cervical cancer, which is what the vaccine is allegedly shown to be helpful for. Why are we giving boys the shot, the vaccine? Where's where like where's the, the data showing that that's even makes sense, let alone beneficial? And I'm not accusing. I'm not trying to come at right. you. Right, I'm right. To no, make no, sense no. Of this. Well, even a better question: Where else can you get an HPV-related cancer, uh, neck, Right? Where else in the body? So um, you can have, um, or someone can have uh, anal HPV, and they can get anal neck. Hmm. Right. And that, and then this this cancer also is rising, okay. Um, you can have also penile HPV lesions, okay. So that has been penile and genital HPV. They call them condylomas, and they're normally related to low risk. So, so HPV has two two big categories: high risk HPV, and that's the one related to uh, you know development of RECNAC, and then you have low risk. HPV and these cause what they call condylomas is like, you know, uh, polypoid lesions. So genital and penile condylomas can also develop from HPV infection. And are you familiar with any, any data that the Gardasil shot is effective against any of I, these other types of, of I, I don't have, I don't have 
data on Gardasil. I mean, this is really not my area at all. So uh, I don't have data on Gardasil and what Gardasil does. It should be your area, though. It's one of the things people are doing to prevent the, the, the cancer that you study. Right. But but if you, if you think about... <laughs> you got to be able to give about, them a straight answer on it. Right. But but again, I mean, the Gardasil itself as a vaccine um, is, is offered to people that we don't see. This is offered at a young age, offered to people that we don't see. We we, we get a lot of samples for, um, you know, patients that care for the gay community. We get a lot of anal and um, anal paps and anal HPV testing, and we get a lot of anal samples. In the GI tract, when they do an endoscopy, they can take an, an anal lesion, and mm-hmm. a lot of these can be cancer and it can be HPV-related. So, um, you know... Of course, you know, it, it would be good to, to know all of that, but, you know, there is a limit in this brain. It's not that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> you strike me as a limitless guy. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to really make sense of it, and I'll be the first to admit that. I'm curious about it, you know, but even with even if we go back to the, the 80s and, and AIDS, a lot of the research there was done in the gay community, but these were also people that in some cases were taking poppers. In some cases were taking AZT, you know, Freddie Mercury from Queen, uh, Arthur Ashe. A lot of these famous AIDS deaths, those guys were on AZT, a known toxic drug. And, and, and so it's very difficult to isolate variables and make some of the, the claims that that we've, you know, sort of been led to accept blindly when you look into it and you're like, okay, well, it seems like a lot of these guys that are getting sick are taking this medication or engaging in activities that don't necessarily affect the heterosexual population to even the same degree, you know? Right. And, and again, I mean, I also want to say this. I, I know that nobody can claim that the approval process for any product is perfect, mm-hmm. right? And and the and the possibilities are probably numerous. You cannot, you know, come. We we discover things, and some things happen immediately. Some things happen long term, and that's why there is a consistent uh, or continuous oversight. Mm-hmm. If there is a drug out in the market, and it's and then you discover after five years of approval that there are things, and then usually there is a continuous oversight. But I, I personally would never uh, be under the illusion that every medical product or every treatment out there is perfect, right? Right, it's, and, it's and I'm not saying they're all bad either. You know, right. I want to exactly. I want to make that clear. Right, but 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 you know. Um, you know, I have very high confidence, of course, in what I offer, because what we offer is just it's a swab. You put it in for 10, 15 seconds. It's out. There isn't any uh, there is any there's not going to be any long lasting uh, side effect to having a, uh, a swab done. And and again, we're not even saying that you uh, you're positive, then you should go and have an MRI or have a CT scan of your head and neck. We're not even saying that. We're saying that this is a test that you do it if you're positive. We want to see if you have persistent HPV infection or not. We test you in six to twelve months, and if we find that okay, you are having persistent HPV infection, we're going to refer you to an ENT doctor. The ENT doctor will just follow you, follow up, and you do follow up and maybe a scope. And if you find an early lesion and you remove it. That's going to be definitely better for your survival. It, it it increases your chances of not developing an advanced cancer, and that's the case that we're dealing with today. And I always say, I mean, our hands are tied, of course, because there are no established guidelines because nobody has developed these guidelines. But as healthcare providers, we can't just sit on our hands and wait for some guidelines to descend. I'm using a very logical, scientifically sound approach where. HPV-related cancer, then we have to test an HPV. And the fact that we are dealing with cancer that's rising and nobody thought about offering a throat swab to test for HPV, it's, 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 um, it's unacceptable. Yeah, I, li- I like it. I appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, can you, so let's say hypothetically that, that someone finds out that they have throat HPV. It would resolve itself on its own, but now they're also aware that they might have a higher probability of of that 
turning into cancer at some point in time. What what are the the recommendations, lifestyle, behavior changes, whatever that you're like, okay, here's what you need to do to truly lower your risk and minimize the odds of that occurring? That's a, that's a great question. So, and again, we said, when you're dealing, when you're dealing with, with a healthcare issue like this, where you don't have enough data and nobody's doing anything about it or whatever is done is not enough, uh, patient and healthcare provider education is, is extremely important. So we know from data, published data, that um, HPV is linked uh, or high risk for HPV includes um, multiple sexual partners, uh, people with reduced immunity, people that, and reduced immunity could be diabetics, could be somebody on chemotherapy, could be someone who's dealing with an acquired immune deficiency. Mm -hmm. Uh, Smoking increases the patient's susceptibility for uh, cancer for uh, HPV because there is a the smoking changes the cellular uh, composition of that area and makes it less it's making it more susceptible to HPV infection. Mm-hmm. So with all of that, uh, you uh, somebody comes in positive for HPV, that person would be told uh, number one that doesn't mean you have oropharyngeal or throat cancer. Uh, that disease in most of the cases resolves on its own. We need you to follow up with a test in six to 12 months. Usually the data show that it HPV infection resolves in somewhere between 12 to 18 months. So you can test them once or twice, but if they continue to show that they have HPV infection, then you can refer these patients to an ENT doctor and then they get on a follow-up and they can get tested and maybe they can, be, I mean, when I say tested, it means scoped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have dentists that told me, no, once the patient is positive for HPV, I want him referred because I don't want to have that uh, responsibility of following up somebody with throat cancer or with a high risk for throat cancer. Mm. And some other people say, I'll do it, but my patient is so anxious. That patient can be referred to an ENT doctor and can be reassured with the, with the, with the examination. That's, that's what that. laughing gas is for. I'm sorry? That's what laughing <laughs> gas is for. <laughs> so so the, 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 this is a, the approach is based on patient and physician and dental dentist education. Mm-hmm. But there is, in, until we have established guidelines, we have uh, enough flexibility. The main thing in medicine is what? Do no harm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we want to protect... The old Hippocratic Oath. Yes. We want to protect uh, patients from developing cancer. I don't know how somebody can handle uh, turning down, uh, a healthcare provider can handle turning down uh, throat HPV for a patient, and then that patient comes back in six months or in a year or two years with throat cancer. I don't know how they can handle that. Mm, you're saying you're saying the, the responsibility and guilt of, of, of just wanting to absolve themselves of a diagnostic tool. Right, and and it's something that is simple and affordable, and and it will not harm the patient to test, and anxiety is not harm because women go through that all the time. Yeah, women is, are told, is, isn't that what the white lab coat effect is basically like? <laughs> you know, if someone's taking your blood pressure and they've got a white coat on, your blood pressure typically is going to be higher because you're a little nervous, and you know, right? Like. If we're, if, if we're like, do, cause no anxiety, uh, every doctor is out of business. <laughs> it's called the halo effect, right? Yeah, but the halo yeah. effect, the other one is like, it's reassuring. But I, I, I have to tell you that story. My first year of internship, it was in a hospital, uh, a public hospital in Cairo. First day I show up and I'm scheduled to be in the, in the, in the emergency room. And the first patient is somebody with a, a scalp laceration. So the, the, the surgical resident who is going to teach me how to do stitches on this patient's scalp has been in the hospital for maybe 48 hours. So his coat or Super mentally sharp at this point. And, and he's like, really, his beard is not shaven. And I show up first day. I have a brand new lab coat. I'm shaved. I'm looking great. And the patient is lying down at the table. And he looked at me and he looked at the person who's supposed to be teaching me. And he said, 
doctor, could you please do it? <laughs> He's asking me because I look better <laughs> to, to do it. And I don't know how to do it. And he I don't know he how didn't to... want the Unabomber looking guy. Doing no, he did stitches. not. And he was so scared. And, I'm, and, I, and, I, and I made a joke and I said, don't worry, I'm, I'm with him. <laughs> and then, of course, it wasn't appreciated by the resident because I sounded like a smart ass. And, he, uh, and then I said, no, this is my teacher. And, and uh, we, that, went, that went very well. And but you've been I, showing up I to work that. looking like a looking like a million bucks every day since. <laughs> Yes, right. it's all about that. Yeah. That just solidified it. You're like, that was a lot of work getting so dressed up and, you know, sharp looking today. And then and then the guy's like instantly thinks that you're the man and you're like, all right, I'm doing that every day, I guess. Yeah, I look like a boss. <laughs> yeah, right. Like a G'd up from the feet up. <laughs> um, tell, I, I'm, I'm interested because like. I mentioned I spent I've, I've been to Cairo twice visiting my brother. We went to we went to Luxor, had this amazing tour with uh, a, a, a guy by the name of Abdul Arafua. And, and after the tour of, of Luxor and the pyramids and everything, he took us to meet his two wives and 15 kids. And and we had these beautiful pictures hanging out with them. They, they brought they brought us real bottles of like cold Coca-Cola and um, showed us their cow. And we had, we just had a beautiful evening there. So lots of, of fond memories in Egypt. And one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting was how it was your mother's mindset and approach to um, Recknack or cancer. And uh, maybe you could explain a little bit of, of her philosophy. So when you told me uh, about Recknack and I didn't know what it meant and you told me that uh, the word spelled backwards, I immediately remember that my mom, uh, God bless her soul, when, uh, when we were young, uh, if she tells us about somebody who was diagnosed with the disease, she would not say the word. She would say she was diagnosed with the bad disease. She called it the bad disease because the culture was you don't want to, to mention that bad word because it just you know it's an evil word it's a bad word you want to push it and and actually this translates a lot in the cultural handling of diseases for example you hear the term in america in the west uh, such and such is fighting cancer right so there is like an active process of getting the disease or like dealing with the disease Resisting. Um, yeah, there is like, yeah, you do it in fighting. Um, we say such such gut cancer, right? Uh, but also, there is a lot of faith in dealing with those diseases. So if somebody is diagnosed with the disease, you have, and it happens here too, but you have people praying. Um, we have actually an unbelievable concept, which is... Um, something from Prophet Muhammad that he said, one of his saying that um, you, you, you treat your, um, your, uh, your loved ones, your sick loved ones with charity. So it's an active process. You give charity and you give more charity because that can give, you know, blessings from God that would um, help your loved one dealing with the disease and fighting the disease. So, so the culture is really... What, but what would be like an example of that? Of charity, yeah. How would you oh. how would you employ how would you employ that? Or so, for example, uh, you would you would you would find somebody who is in need. In fact, you can find somebody who is dealing with the same disease and pay for their medical expenses or pay for their family to to sustain the family while the father is going through illness and out of a mm. job uh, or donate. Like we have, we have an amazing institution in Egypt, the Children Cancer Hospital, which is a wonderful uh, place. And they actually they collect donations here in America for it. Uh, so there are programs where you can buy a piece of equipment, put it there. You can, uh, you know, uh, fund an ICU uh, 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 in the hospital. So there are so many things. There are there is a need in in the in the society for that. So. With with the calamity and with the illness, you find people are willing to give more and be more charitable and help similar people in the same situation. Uh, so really beautiful values, and, and they have been in the culture for, for years and years. Um, but when you talk about Egypt, also the other thing I mentioned, I wanted to mention about your brother. There is a saying that if you drink from the Nile, you always come back. 
<laughs> so, yeah. uh, so this is like the beauty of, of Egypt is is a, is a beautiful country. I love Egypt. Uh, Cairo is my sweetheart. So Cairo and yeah. Los Angeles are my two favorite cities. Yeah, Cairo's Cairo's great, and it's it's got this beautiful chaos to it especially when you're driving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, absolutely. You know, I, I tell you something. There are communities now outside of Cairo in the north and the south and the uh, north and the east, actually, and they have these gated communities. I don't like that. I mean, I, if I'm in Cairo, I want to be in Cairo. I want to yeah. be in that chaos. I want to I want to rub shoulders with everybody because I just this is where I belong. Mm-hmm. I I don't like this uh, isolated bubbles that no. they have created. No. This is not this is not my Cairo. Right. We were we're actually I, I was talking with with Ron Huntinghake in a recent episode, and there's a book called I think it's Anti Cancer Living, and the. The, the single most important thing that this book cites for people that are dealing with cancer is community and connection, not being isolated. You know, having, um, I guess an example that you reminded me of is my my dad, uh, my father passed away recently. He'd had Parkinson's and had a, uh, his intestines got twisted up, cut off blood flow to his colon, his colon died and uh, he, he wouldn't have made it through the surgery. Uh, and afterwards, after his, like that week, and even after his service, we had people bringing us dinner and it was great. It was, it was great to like see people that you don't see a lot of times. It was great to not have to make dinner <laughs> and get to try all these like, you know, delicious, delicious home cooked, home cooked meals that were prepared for us. And I was like, what a beautiful practice this is. Lovely to have someone stop by, say hi. You get to see them. You enjoy a warm meal cooked with love. And gosh, how how great it would be if if more of us, you know, listening to this conversation just employed some of these simple things. You don't need a ton of a ton of dough to make somebody dinner and bring it over there and just ask how they're doing and say, hey, all right, I'm going to get out of your hair. Just wanted you to have this. And also, there is some uh, sense of loneliness when you're when you're ill. Mm-hmm. And and to feel that your community is with you, mm-hmm. and you're not alone, uh, it, it makes a big difference. And uh, and and even if it's not something that's tangible, I think deep down you feel like, yeah, this is this is uh, this is real, and um, and this is helpful. I think it's important that you would support everyone uh, who is um, you know dealing with any kind of illness because that's really. Um, a tremendous, um, a tremendous value to have to be always supporting people that need help. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, last question, and, and then we'll kind of land the plane, and I'll give the mic over to you, and you could share anything, anything else you feel called to share. There's a book by uh, Stephen Covey called "The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People." Probably heard of it. I'm sure our listeners have. And in there, he's got this practice that he calls beginning with the end in mind. Now, I don't know if this originated somewhere else first, but essentially it's you're you're thinking about uh, when you transition and pass away and how you want, you know, to be able to look back on your life and what what you've accomplished, who shows up, what what do people say about you at your funeral and all that stuff. Um, I mean, what what impact do you want to leave professionally? You know, where when your time comes, hopefully many, many decades from now, you know, you can say that was the contribution that I made to, to, to my field. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a great question. Um, um, I can tell you that uh, as you get older, you probably think more and more about your legacy. And uh, I think that... Um, my legacy is uh, is going. I hope that my legacy would be that there are multiple levels of it, right? Because there is like something on the on the family, and there's something you know professionally, and there's something about um, you know what you did with other people, right? So um, on the family, I think I, I have three wonderful children. They're not children anymore. The youngest is 24 years old. Um, and um, I, you know, want them to know that they can always know that they, they were given, I, I left 
values that can be the foundation for their, um, you know, presence in life. Uh, I think one of the things that my wife and I did were, was that we wanted our kids to, you know, always be proud of their heritage, you know, to be, you know, proud Muslims, proud Egyptians. Um, growing in the United States, we always never felt that we're foreigners. We always believed that this is the country for us to be. Everything we do is contributing to the betterment of the society. And what's better than to come in and bring this great heritage and these great values to to a country like America? Mm -hmm. uh, so to to always know, you know, the right and the wrong, and to help and never never support uh, tyrants and oppressors, and never never um, allow yourself to engage in any injustice onto others. So this is like mm -hmm. in brief what I you know for family, mm -hmm. um, for professionally. I, um, I feel that uh, the reason I opened my lab was that I wanted to practice in a way that I feel is the right way. I didn't want my approach to be dictated by some other power. I wanted, I have a philosophy about medicine. I have a philosophy about how to do what I do. And I wanted to implement that. And that's what I did. And of course, with, with our testing and what we do, we, you know, the pathology you deal with more patients as a pathologist than if you are in a clinical practice. So for me, I feel that maybe, maybe the, 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 the icing on the cake would be that, you know, they say that this person, you know, did well, but, you know, maybe somebody one day will say throat cancer was rising and it started to decline when we started testing for oropharyngeal or throat HPV. Maybe that could be my legacy, maybe other things, but at work, I always want to be there for the young professionals. I want to mentor people, I want to educate, I want to teach, I want to share my knowledge because I feel that this is also, this is actually another another uh, value that I got from my religion, which is, you know, that, that, that what you, what you re in return to the knowledge you have is to give it back, to share your knowledge. That is a duty on everybody with any kind of knowledge. And I, I like believe that, that I'm like a that. lifelong, learner. I, I'm going to mm -hmm. always learn something until I die. So this is in summary, I, I spoke too much on that, but I just hope that this no, was not, uh, not too much at all. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I resonate with that too. That's, that's a big purpose of what, why, you know, we do these, we have these conversations and do these podcasts is to ask questions, share our knowledge with people that it might be able to help give clarity where sometimes clarity does not exist. And, uh, and, and yeah, guys, if you've been enjoying this episode with, uh, Dr. Muhammad Kamal and, and myself, share it, send it to people who might also get value from it and, and be a part of, you know, helping the collective consciousness, uh, by being generous with, with the information and things that you find useful. Um, Dr. Kamal, any, any last words, ways people can stay up to date with things you're working on? Um, anything that you feel called to share right now? Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I would like people to look us up, omnipathology.com. This is our website. We make sure there is there is an educational uh, page that you could learn a lot of things. You're going to see videos and see some of my lectures talking about the throat HPV, but talking about other things. I have a lot of lectures. My YouTube channel is Omnipathology. Welcome to uh, to follow and um, and watch some of the videos. And hopefully when this episode is out, we're going to share it there as well. Um, and then uh, I, I think that one thing we learned from the COVID pandemic is that people started to be more active in uh, taking charge of their health. And I feel that you're doing a wonderful job in educating people and, and providing that voice that um, that pushes people to get the truth and to, to seek knowledge. And I think that you need to really take an active role in your own health. And that includes, of course, um, healthy practices and, and leading a healthy life, but also, you know, seeking the m medical information that may not be available through your immediate physician but go out and be active in pursuing that because nobody's going to care for your health more than yourself. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Mohammed Kamal, thank you so much for sharing your time and energy and wisdom with us today. 
Um, guys, uh, check out omnipathology.com and, uh, and as, as an educational resource. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Take control of your health, take responsibility. No one will care more about it than you. And a lot of times we, we, we tend to underestimate our intelligence and, and want to outsource these things because we think someone else is smarter or has, and, and, and maybe they are, but they're not going to care as much. And there's a care factor here that really does matter. And they, they certainly won't have the time that, that you have to be able to investigate these things and become an expert in your own biology. So, um, I appreciate you, you making that recommendation, Dr. Muhammad Kamal, and thank you for coming on today. It's been a fun conversation. Anthony, thank you so much. I had a great fun in, in this. It was it's really amazing. Thank you for, for allowing me to, to speak to your audience and to share my information. Absolutely. I did as well. Thank you so much. The modern man is devolving and at a rapid pace. Men today have an average IQ that's eight points lower than they were just 20 years ago. Men today are 50% more likely to be depressed compared to just 20 years ago, are 300% more likely to be obese compared to just 60 years ago, have sperm counts that are 62% lower than they were just 50 years ago, and have testosterone levels that are about 50% lower than they were just 20 years ago. But the reality is that it doesn't have to be this way. Your manhood, your strength, your power, your energy, your focus, all of these things are within your control. And you just need to recognize that all over the world, there are people that are curing cancer. There are people that are overcoming heart disease. Diabetes is a choice if you have the right tools at your disposal. But if you are one of the men that does not want to follow this pattern and you wanna take control of this stuff, you wanna have control over your body and mind, then I encourage you to go to biohackercoaching.com, fill out the short form, grab a time to talk with myself or someone from our team, Everything that we do is 100% guaranteed. If you're not absolutely thrilled with the results that you get, I don't want your money, I'll give it back. If you don't get a return, meaning if you don't make more money as a result of us working together because of greater energy, greater health, greater, greater focus, greater mental clarity, thinking faster, working smarter, getting more done in less time, then I don't want your money. So it's no risk to you. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for being a part of the Biohacking Secrets family. Thank you for supporting this podcast. If you want to level up, go to biohackercoaching.com. Thank you.